0: An island in the Pacific, and everything about it is terrific. I got the sun to tend me, palms to fan me, and an occasional man. Welcome to episode 45 of Sassmouth Dames Podcast. Don't roll your eyes over the Jungle Princess from 1936. You may object that all those sarong pictures are horribly dated, kind of racist, and not worth the time. Well, they do contain racism. I won't sugarcoat the part where, in this picture, the indigenous tribe appears violent and superstitious, save Dorothy Lamour and one man who sacrifices his life to rescue the white folks. There's a definite element of othering here. Instead of having her own people as friends or confidants, Dorothy's character has only animal companions. Since she lives alone and is alienated from her own culture, it makes Dorothy's character Ula prime for assimilation as a romantic partner for the so-called civilized Brit. But in another way, the Brits are presented as arrogant and fairly deluded about the realities of life in the rainforest. So it's not all skewed in favor of the white men. The Jungle Princess is worth highlighting for the standout star vehicle it was for Dorothy L'Amour. The picture includes a degree of subversive material that sidesteps Joseph Breen and the censors. After the production code went into effect in the summer of 1934 and censorship tightened, this picture gets away with a lot in its depiction of a woman's potent libido in a way that it would not be possible if it were set on Park Avenue. Because she's outside of Western society, it's okay if she has transparent sexual desires. L'Amour's character Ulla has not been indoctrinated into shame and double standards or what the production code would call morality. A dame of nature can have sex on the brain all she wants. Also, this picture is loaded with suspense and thrilling action sequences that have not diminished over the years. You just can't beat the spectacle of a good stampede. Adolf Zukor, the head of Paramount Pictures, took his time to find the woman who would become the lead for his picture set in Malaysia. As Edith had recalled in Edith Head's Hollywood, more than 200 girls paraded in front of his desk for consideration. Zukor knew he could get a newcomer for 200 a week rather than pay out a lucrative contract held by someone like, say, Catherine Hepburn. One day before Dorothy L'Amour entered Zukor's office, she simply loosened and shook down her waist-length tresses and popped a fake hibiscus behind her ear. Voila, she was cast in the starring role of her first major picture. The role may be only a B picture. It was hardly in the league of, say, a Scarlett O'Hara search. But don't sneeze at a good B picture. A good popcorn movie can be a surefire bomb for the soul in the way that something as grandiose as Gone with the Wind can feel like a marathon you must gird your loins first to watch. There's a tangible fairy tale quality to this picture, which helps define its enduring appeal. In the opening scene, a little girl of five or six years old goes fishing. She handily spears a sizable catch and then stops to admonish a tiger cub, who is trailed along beside her and tries to snatch the fish. In the scene, the child wears a traditionally wrapped sarong that only covers the waist down, with her torso left open to the sun. The girl lives with her father, who worries for her safety when a herd of elephants are spooked and stampede through the village, crashing every hut beneath their massive hulk. What a thrilling scene it makes. The little girl isn't harmed. She's safe with the cub and the fish she caught. But before viewers have recovered from the violent thunder of the elephant rampage, danger returns in another form. In a parental clash, the mama tiger shows up to claim her baby. Although the girl's father attempts to reunite the big cat with her cub, the angry mother leaps on the man, crushes and mauls him, but not before he spears the tiger. Both parents now dead, the little orphans band together. Tell me you don't want to see a picture about a girl who grows up with a tiger for a best friend. Fast forward 15 years, where a legend rules men with terror. When the tiger roars, the local men scream and run away. They explain it to the British explorers, there for some nefarious colonial plan, that the animal is known as the tiger which laughs. The tribesmen believe that a spirit has taken possession of the beast. Only her laugh is heard. The tribesmen haven't yet seen the young woman who travels with the tiger. When the older white men dismiss it as superstition, Ray Milan, Dorothy's co-star, reasons that devils are as real to them as the leopards are to us. Milan's character claims to be an authority on local custom, and somehow the language. His real purpose for being there is to write a book, which he hasn't yet accomplished, so he sends the others away to Singapore, including his fiancée, who doesn't care to receive the brush-off. The picture tells us that women from the Empire are decorative, but only gum up the works when it comes to getting work done. Molly Lamont plays his fiance Ava, and doesn't have much to do really but look useless or disapproving while wearing a spray of chiffon from her pith helmet. Viewers can tell, though, that Ray Milland's Chris Powell has no idea what he's doing when he sets off for his journey to locate the fabled tiger for his book. That's a bit of a surprise, really, that the film resists his claim to being an expert. For example, on a trail, he tells his guide, he thinks the jungle quiets down at night. Chris believes that order and reason prevail somehow because he interprets its presence. They pass two bear cubs wrestling, and he quips, see how tame they are? The definition of tame is as slippery as the trail in the rainy season. He only sees what he wants to see. Two baby animals may not pose a threat, but he's only taken a dozen steps away from camp at this point. To say he's guilty of hubris in assessing his environs would be a vast understatement. Next, he spots the tiger and then hears the laugh of folklore and attempts to track the animal and find the truth behind the myth. Enter Dorothy L'Amour, whose hair looks natural and unstyled. It's loose and wavy, but it also has a bit of a frizzy quality. It doesn't appear that she sat under a dryer with rollers in her hair for hours each morning. Dorothy's makeup is minimal. Moderate lashes, some pancake base, and a slick of Vaseline for glossy lips. L'Amour is glamorous, but far from heavily styled. She doesn't need any flashy adornment or embellishment. A simple frock, radiant sun-kissed skin, and a luxuriant mermaid hair are really all she needs. In a strapless sarong that grazes her thigh, a true legend was born. You can understand why at this point, Ray Milan forgets to be afraid of the striped beast that roars. When he encounters a beautiful woman who seems entirely self-possessed and confident, she meets his gaze. None of that shy, demure, batslashes maneuvers for her. She hasn't yet learned how to be submissive. Unlike Tarzan, who's usually kind of a thick, especially when it comes to sex, Ula, as she later introduces herself, exhibits keen perception and communicates before they share a common language. When she finds him, Chris has received a blow from the tiger that twists up his ankle. Minor, really, compared to what the cat could have done had not Ula called him off. In less than five minutes after they've met, Ula makes her intentions clear. When Chris needs help to walk and puts his arm around her, Ula grabs his forearm and tightens his embrace. It's not every day a tall man who looks good in Bermuda shorts lands outside her cave. Ula may be younger and smaller than Chris, but she's no delicate flower overcome by his ferocious masculine prowess. She already has that with Li Mao the tiger. I can think of films made decades after The Jungle Princess that do not show a woman with an independent libido to say nothing of a woman who does not in fact get the vapors from a man in proximity. One of the most ridiculous versions of the scenario occurs in Nell from 1944, where Jodie Foster, as a child of nature, removed from an inexperienced with men, has a meltdown at the very thought of Liam Neeson's penis. Well, maybe she was psychic and knew about that recent racist review he gave where he talked about wanting to kill a black man, and that's why she had a fit of hysterics. But come on. Ula has tamed a 500-pound Bengal tiger. She need hardly worry about one man. A woman's picture from 1936 gives us a much more interesting scenario for women's sexuality than what was on offer in the 1990s. Ula has no reason to be afraid of Chris. She's curious. She wants to get closer. She likes the look of his mouth, or as she pronounces it, mouth It's also no accident that she pronounces his name as Kiss, dropping the R. Once she brings him back to recuperate in her cave, he reacts to her advances as though he were the virtue worried maiden. Chris spreads out on her bed without thinking, so Ula naturally adds to the nest of dried palms next to him and joins him. Repressed or more likely indignant that she took the liberty to make the first move, Chris leaves the bed next to Ula, walks across the cave to the other side of the fire, and settles down with his back to her. Ula holds a puzzled look on her face. What's a lady gotta do to get some action? Only a beast would turn down some yum-yum with Dorothy L'Amour. While Chris waits to be rescued by his fellow colonizers, Ula tries for a kiss. He does everything to put her off, including a swim in the lagoon in his boxers. Ula joins him and they swim together. Whenever she gets close, he puts her off like a schoolboy by dunking her underwater. Their cohabitation scenes are surprisingly good because Ula never functions in a domestic capacity, aside from when he was first injured and she gathered some lily pads for a healing compress even there you could identify her rescue operation as based on skill we're not given scenes of her cooking or cleaning for him thank goodness she's no sap like jane instead we see chris improvising a shave so that he can please her with a smooth face rather than those porcupine whiskers he grows you know it's only a matter of time before so-called civilization finds them The first thing he does when they do is to tell Ula to send Limo, the tiger, away. Don't trust a man who cuts you off from your loved ones. Then his fiancée, Ava, thinks she's being benevolent by giving Ula a makeover. When Ula first meets Ava, she flirts a little and calls her pretty. Ava's idea of a reward is to dress Ula in a heavy black gown with a hideous, improbable lace yoke adorned with a gigantic white bow. Ava departs in a hurry to join the men for dinner. Ula takes one look at herself and becomes furious, and rightly so. She rips off the saccharine accessories. Then she spots the chimp who's copied her makeover by wearing a little shawl. When Ula appears for dinner, she has improvised a new makeover, one in tune with her own taste. She fashions the silk shawl from the chimp around her like a more formal than usual sarong. It fits snug against her body, but her limbs move with as much grace as her tiger sibling. Ava looks like she's a relic from the past, like a low-key Miss Havisham. Here's another moment where the film resists the supremacy of the empire. The colonials who insist on dressing like they were done up for a show in London's West End look absurd in the rainforest. They seem a bit daft and deluded next to a woman in a simple sarong that suits the climate. Ula doesn't need a magazine or a shop front to tell her that she looks good because she knows herself and she knows where she is. Clearly, the fiancé cannot say the same. Three men help Ulla sit down. Ava is furious at all the attention she receives. Then, on the veranda, Ula serenades Chris in English to Moonlight and Shadows, the tune that she had sung earlier. Chris boasts that he's the one who taught her the English words. Moonlight and Shadows was an enormous hit for Dorothy L'Amour, by the way. A mob of villagers interrupt the dinner party. They have captured Limo, the tiger. They think Ula is a witch and demand that the white men turn her over to them. Calamity ensues. I won't spoil the plot, but it's a corker. You can find it online with a Google search for that Russian website I always tell you about. Edith Head recalled the process she went through to costume Dorothy for the production in Edith Head's Hollywood. She says, The very first sarong I made for Dottie was of a very authentic Malaysian cotton, accurate right down to the uneven weave in its island print. It was also extremely ugly. The fabric didn't drape well, making Dottie look like she was wearing a flower print sack. If I tied it tight, she was uncomfortable, and if I didn't, she looked awful. I decided to use satin crepe instead of cotton, so I had it screened in exactly the native print I wanted. It draped beautifully and created the voluptuous look I wanted for the Star of the Jungle Princess. When Mr. Zukor saw how beautiful Dorothy looked in her full makeup and costume, he changed the name from Girl of the Jungle to Jungle Girl and finally to the Jungle Princess with the highest compliments to Miss L'Amour. The new fabric achieved exactly the form I wanted, but function was again suffering. You couldn't count on not staying tied in the slippery cloth, especially if it got wet. The cameras were on one day as Dorothy set out for her first scene in a tropical stream. Actually, it was a wooden pool on one of the smaller sound stages. Her co-star, Ray Milan, was to join our lovely water lily when all of a sudden Dorothy screamed and the sarong floated to the surface, along with the bus pads we stuffed into the suit to make her look chesty. Milan was laughing himself silly. Dorothy grabbed for the cloth, wrapped it around herself as best she could, and we sewed her and the pads into the sarong, forgetting all the authentic sarong wrapping techniques I had learned. From then on, I sewed her into every sarong she wore. Edith had reported that she received numerous offers to start a line of sarong swimwear after the film premiered. Edith Sarong's initiated a massive trend for Dorothy's style. The Jungle Princess sparked the popularity of tiki bars and Polynesian-themed nightclubs and restaurants in the U.S. During the Depression, it offered an exotic relief from the economic grind of life in America. Ray Moland dismisses the production in his memoir, Wide-Eyed in Babylon, first published in 1974, even though it gave him his first starring role in Hollywood. He does credit Dorothy with landing him the role. He wrote that he had tested with her and that afterward, when the producer wanted to hold tests for the leading man, Dorothy intervened and said she thought he was the her co-star. She prevailed on the studio bosses and Milan was cast. One story he shares paints Milan as an outright cad. He even told the story on the Johnny Carson show. I'm sure were you to go all Freudian on him in response, he would deny it and call you the pervert. Milan had issues. To paraphrase, when they were scheduled to film the swim scene, Milan recalled that the sun had not cooperated for most of the day. They couldn't shoot with clouds overhead. So the cast and crew waited. The clock ticked by until suddenly he had to pee, and the sun came out all at once. Willem Tila, the director, called everyone to attention so he could get the camera rolling. Milan dove in the water. Dorothy joined him. Once he hit the cold water, it was impossible for him to hold it. As they kissed, Milan said, he had the best we of his life. He enjoyed it so much that he feared it might develop into a perversion. But that's enough from him. This is a man who wrote that the tiger must have been homosexual because it liked him. Now you can roll your eyes. I'll close the episode with an excerpt from Dorothy L'Amour's memoir, My Side of the Road, published in 1980. One Saturday morning, I noticed Mr. Teela and Henry Fishbeck, the cameraman, looking me over. Teela was concerned about the dark circles under my eyes and told me that I really should stop keeping late hours, at least while working on the film. My feelings were terribly hurt since in those days, I neither drank nor stayed out late. When I got home that night, I told mother what Tila had said. She pulled out a baby picture of me. At the age of six months, I'd had huge circles under my eyes, and I certainly wasn't keeping late hours back then. My other leading man was a chimpanzee called Go-Go. Working with the chimp was a delight for me, but one day he got mad at two of the workmen on set. Gogo scratched one man's back to ribbons, and he picked up the other and threw him about forty feet into a rocky waterfall. The man was hospitalized, and sometime later he died from the complications. The story was altered by the publicity department and released as "Chimp Attacks Lamour on Set of First Film." But fortunately, I had a good working relationship with the chimp, and also the leopard and the tiger. In order to make the picture as authentic as possible, they sent us on location, way out in the San Fernando Valley, to a place called Brent's Crags. They put us up in tents to live, one served as a dining room, and two others as the ladies' and men's showers. We had to wait in line for the shower, which consisted of a hose hung up on a rack with a spray attachment in place of a nozzle. For my role of Ula, the jungle princess, I had to cover myself from head to toe with grease paint, this body makeup which was a chore to wash off even under normal circumstances. In our makeshift shower, it was darn near impossible. I soon developed skin poisoning on my face and had to be sent to a specialist highly recommended by my idol, Carol Lombard. More about her later. The dermatologist poked and pulled at my face, leaving a slight scar on my right cheek that's never been noticeable to anybody but me. But his treatment worked. After a weekend's recuperation, I was back on my way to the jungles of San Fernando. Because we couldn't get trucks through the densely overgrown brush, everything, even the heavy cameras and props, had to be carried by hand. We had to march for 45 minutes, and by the time we arrived at the location to start shooting, we felt as though we had already done a day's work. Having none of the conveniences of home led to other problems, too. I had just finished doing one of my numerous swimming sequences and had to rush to get ready for the next scene. My hair was supposed to be dry and lovely, of course, instead of stringy and soaking wet. To wash it properly back in the tent shower would have taken me an hour and a half round trip, so our hairdresser came up with a purportedly bright idea. Telling me to bend over, she poured liquid dry cleaner over my head. But some of it went into my eyes. The pain was so intense I panicked, screaming and running around blindly. Finally, Ray seized me, slapped my face to stop the hysterics, and then dunked me under the waterfall to dilute the fluid. I was a mess, so they shot around me until I pulled myself together. Ten days after we started shooting, Perry Bodkin, a musician I had met at the studio, came staggering onto the set, lugging his guitar. Practically exhausted after the long hike, Perry told me that the studio had taken another look at my film test and realized that I was a singer. How flattering. But since the Jungle Princess script didn't include a song, they commissioned Frederick Hollander and Leo Robin to write one for me, which they did in half an hour. Perry had been sent to teach it to me. We shot the scene a half hour later. Off camera, Perry kept hitting one note on his guitar for every bar of music to keep me on key. Later, back at Paramount, they dubbed in the orchestra. The song was Moonlight and Shadows, which went on to become number one on the hit parade radio show, and is now regarded as a standard. I still use that 40-year-old song in my nightclub act. I was still self-conscious about my feet, which I felt were very unattractive. To humor me, the studio had them cast in plaster of Paris and constructed a pair of pretty rubber feet for me to wear. I first tried them on in the scene in which Ray was shaving at the top of the waterfall. Since Ula is very inquisitive, I was to climb up to see what was going on. It was a very hot day, as valley days tend to be. As I made my climb, I was perspiring so much that one rubber foot slipped off, and I tumbled back down. That was the end of that. I was doing too many potentially dangerous action scenes to mess with rubber feet, so I learned to live with my ugly ones. We sometimes worked a very hard 16 to 18 hours a day, six days a week. Of course, that was BU, before unions. Each Saturday night, the cast and crew would drive back into town to spend the weekend, just Sunday, at home. First, though, we would stop by the studio to view the rushes. Later on, the director and film editor would put the finishing film together. I entered the projection room for the first time with great glee, looking forward to seeing all the footage shot during the week before, but I hated everything I saw and I left wanting to die. Mother consoled me as usual, but I never overcame that dislike of seeing myself in rushes. The same thing goes for listening to my own recordings. I guess I'm my own most severe critic. Finally, we finished location shooting and returned to the studio to wrap up the picture. Since I was still a third floor actress, I didn't have permission to park in the lot and had to leave my Ford at the gas station a block away. After working very late one night, I walked to the station to find my car had been stolen. I had to make out a report at the Hollywood police station. Three days later, they found it all smashed up. Since repairing it would take quite some time, the studio sent a car each morning to pick me up. At long last, I was sitting in the back seat of a limousine, driving down Gower and right onto the studio lot. On one of my few days off, I had to do picture layouts for a fan magazine. The publicity man assigned to me showed up at our LaBelle tour apartment with a photographer, an armful of tropical fruits, and a small monkey. So far, I had worked with a tiger and a leopard, and had learned that unless monkeys like you immediately, they can be far more dangerous than any animal. And this was my first meeting with a little darling. The publicity man told mother to set up the fruit on our breakfast table, so the photographer could snap me in a sarong having breakfast with the monkey, as as if this was an everyday occurrence. Then he excused himself to go to his car to get something he had forgotten. Ten minutes later, there was a knock on the door. Mother opened it, assuming it was the publicity man back again. Instead, it was a policeman. An unidentified phone caller had complained that there was a half naked woman and a monkey running around the halls of La Belle Tour. This was my first experience with an overimaginative publicist. He was the unidentified caller. Leaving our apartment, he'd gone to the nearest phone and called not only the police, but every newspaper in town. The incident was reported all over the wire services and made a big splash in all the papers. I was so shocked and embarrassed that I felt I couldn't face a soul at the studio the next day. But everyone at Paramount thought it was a real hoot and congratulated me on the coverage I received. Well, almost everyone. The following Sunday, Mother and I went to church as usual. The clergyman must have seen the story and the pictures of me and my sarong that Paramount was releasing. When he spotted me sitting in his congregation, he dropped his regular sermon and started to attack nudity in the films and half-naked women cavorting with animals. I was so humiliated that I never returned to that particular church again. I often wonder what that minister would say about today's movies, which often make my sarong look like Long John's. Still a dedicated movie fan, I used to ogle the big stars who worked around the studio. My most frequented spot was near the first floor dressing rooms, where I could get a glimpse of my favorite actress, Carol Lombard. She must have heard I was the new girl on the lot, so one day she smiled and said hello. The next time I saw her, she stopped to chat for a while. As far as I was concerned, I had now arrived." A couple of weeks later, Paramount informed me that as soon as we finished The Jungle Princess, I would be going directly into a new film called Swing High, Swing Low. The stars of the film were to be Fred McMurray and Carol Lombard. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time when I talk about Jean Tierney and Lara from 1944. Thanks very much.